The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, Lord. Many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen what Jesus had done began to believe in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, what are we going to do? This man is performing many signs. If we leave him alone, all will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our land and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing, nor do you consider that it is better for you that one man should die instead of the people, so that the whole nation may not perish. He did not say this on his own, but since he was high priest for that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the dispersed children of God. So from that day on, they planned to kill him. So Jesus no longer walked about in public among the Jews, but he left for the region near the desert to a town called Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. They looked for Jesus and said to one another, as they were in the temple area, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast? The Gospel of the Lord. The Lord has something to say, too, and he speaks volumes in the readings that are before us today. One of the remarkable characteristics of the prophecy that we read in the book of Ezekiel is there is a strong note about these inspired words that involves the resurrection of the people, not the resurrection of a person but literally on a certain level, the resurrection of a people. Israel has been destroyed. Its leaders have been exiled. Ezekiel himself is not prophesying in Palestine. He is prophesying in Babylon because he's an exile too. And note the tenor of that reading. David, my servant, will shepherd them, but David died 500 years earlier. And the kingship has collapsed. There is no king. And so note this idea of royalty rising from the ashes. The northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed some 250 years earlier, and those tribes have all but disappeared from history. And note what the Lord says, I will gather them all together. No longer a divided people, but one people. And this idea of bringing back to a land that they have lost, a people that has been scattered and is now lost, 
a people that is, in a real way, no people at all. It's a remarkable prophecy, this rising up out of the ashes of exile and destruction. And the Lord saying, and as I do this, I will cleanse them of the idolatry and the infidelity and the impurity, which brought all of this destruction crashing down on them in the first place. What a remarkable image, not merely about Israel of old, but of the fallen human race, whose dignity has been compromised, who wanders in darkness more no people than a people, and the Lord saying essentially where there is nothing, where there are ashes and futility, a people will come forward, and there will be one who will be their shepherd. And we, of course, standing on the other side of history from these oracles know just who that shepherd is, Jesus Christ, great and mighty of whom our gospel reading speaks in such wondrous terms today. It's a reading that focuses on the agitation among the people, in particular, the agitation of the leaders. Why are they agitated? Because of what we heard last Sunday, the great sign that has frightened so many is the Lord spoke into an open grave and called dead Lazarus to come out. And Lazarus left the place of death and walked toward the Lord following his word to life again. This is the great sign that provokes this frightened, agitated meeting. And the leaders gather together and note what they say. He is working all of these signs. And so you would think the next statement would be, we should probably believe. We should probably pay attention but no, he is working all of these signs and the people will all end up believing in him and we will lose what we have. Note how the human heart, including the religious heart, often works. The issue here is not whether the signs are true or not. The issue is, he is attracting so many to himself, we will lose what we have. And it's a curious worry that they have. They are worried we will lose our country. We will lose who we are. And... That should give us pause because we hear language like that in our own day, in our own nation and our own land. A certain frightened agitation over these things. And note what we see here, for the sake of holding on to our country, he, 
despite the signs he is working that indicate who he is, must be put to death. The nation is privileged above the Lord who established the nation. Who the people are today is privileged above who the people are called to be by the Lord who has come to save them. The simple fact of the matter is, these who are so worried about their nation are a captive people to begin with, groaning under the oppressive power of Rome and unable to free themselves. But they prefer to cling to the trappings of being a people rather than step forward in response to the call to be God's people. That's a trap that all of our hearts on any given day can fall into. We might do it in terms of different categories, but that idea of if the Lord gets too close, if the Lord takes on too much prominence in my life, what do I lose? And when we look in terms of what I lose or what I give up, note what I'm not asking. What do I gain? Where is the life toward which he is calling me? And why? Because I am so worried about losing something I think is important, I don't even look forward. I look to hold on to who I am and what I have. We should not be tremendously surprised at the example of these religious leaders because they show us, as if holding up a mirror, the truth of many of our own hearts. We know this temptation. We know this struggle. And so it is in their angry deliberation Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks an odd truth. He looks at his brothers and he says, you fail to see what we need to do. You miss the point. If we sacrifice him, the people will be saved. He's speaking of an act of wrath, an act of fear, an act of defensiveness. If we get him out of the way, everything will maintain as it is. We will be all right. It is good that one man die for the nation. Of course, the irony is, as high priest, he is actually speaking the truth without even realizing it. Because he is speaking of that one who will die for all people. That one who is the sacrifice that restores man to friendship with God and gives man real freedom. He is speaking of the one whose life will be given for the benefit of all, just not in the way he thinks. What a remarkable moment, this contrast which brings to a marvelous fulfillment one of the more mysterious lines in the book of Psalms, which says, the wrath of man, the anger of man, 
will praise you, Lord. And what do we see? The wrath of the enemies of Jesus is folded gloriously into the plan by which we are saved. And man's selfish, ambitious anger, even that is accounted for in the will of God. And this violent action toward which they are moving in the plan of God becomes the vehicle he will use to achieve his end, not the ends of Caiaphas, not the ends of the Sanhedrin, not the ends of Rome, but the ends ordained by God. How absolutely wondrous this is. And we see then, the scripture tells us, that all of this takes place as that great Passover during whose celebration all of these things will come to pass was drawing very close. Just like we find ourselves standing on the very doorstep of Holy Week and the great festival by which we recall all of the saving deeds of the Lord is near at hand. Now, how are our hearts with regard to that nearness? There might be a certain insecurity about some of us thinking, I really haven't kept a good Lent, and I'm not ready for this. But the simple fact of the matter is, it's upon us, ready or not. And ready or not, however, each of us has the opportunity to rouse his or her heart to renewed attentiveness and renewed faith. I may not have had a particularly good or fulfilling or satisfying Lent up to this point, but that doesn't mean I can't commit to engaging Holy Week. Note how important that is. There may be among us a certain sense of exhaustion. I just don't have the strength to pay that kind of attention. Or it's too much. It's too many celebrations. The mystery is so much bigger than I am. Then enjoy that experience of your smallness before the greatness of the Lord and start there. But the moment, the moment is coming upon us. And the question is, do we meet it like the sinner who says he is a threat? Let me seize the moment by silencing him. Or do I meet it by one who says the passing from death to life is at hand. The movement from darkness to light is at hand. And do I step toward that movement that it might carry me forward? Because the great thing about the feast days we are about to begin celebrating tomorrow is that it is the feast days that carry us forward. We don't carry them forward. However much work there is in arranging the celebrations, in arriving and showing up for the celebrations, the reality is, over this week, it is not about what we do. 
It is about how we allow the mystery to move us. Don't worry about understanding everything. Don't worry about catching every detail. Feel the movement. Step into it and let the weak carry you. That's how it works. Just as in a few short days after this meeting, events will run and everyone, the entire world, will be swept up in them. And the only one who is truly the master of those events is Jesus Christ. Everyone else is simply moving within the great movement of Jesus. That's what this week that begins tomorrow is for us. It is Jesus who moves. Our job is just to move with him. What a wonderful thing that is. And that brings us then to the other question that we have in our readings today. And notice that we have in our gospel reading today one of the rare instances where we have a reading that ends not with a statement, but with a question. And we're left hanging at the end of the gospel. The question is asked, but the answer is not given. Note the question. Do you think he's not going to show up for the holy days? Notice where the church just drops us. On the day before Palm Sunday, the question is, do you think Jesus is going to be there? And if the answer is yes, then we know where we need to be and what we need to be about. What a, what a marvelous moment. We stand a day before Palm Sunday with the question of Israel. Is he going to be here or isn't he? What do you think? And the implication is, of course, he's going to be there. And the truth of the matter is, he's already here. And he is going to be with us with a particular intensity, a particular power over these coming days beginning tomorrow. And so we will gather as his people. We will gather as that people forged out of nothingness in a very real way to be his people, to be his body. And we will gather with him and we will gather around him tomorrow because we know, oh, he's going to be here. He is going to be here. And he'll be here in these mysteries through this greatest of all weeks. And we will move with him into the very heart of the unspeakably great things that he has done to save us. Things so great the mind simply cannot grasp their fullness. Oh, but the eye of faith and the eye of the heart it can open up and swell in wonderment at what it is that unfolds before us. And over this week, as we move with the Lord, our hands will wave palms. And then our hands will stretch themselves out to receive that great bread and wine, which is the very sacrament of his self-giving. And those hands that receive the sacrament of his self-giving will find themselves upon a cross on Friday. Note how tactile this is. 
we don't just hear about these things. We touch them. We meet them. Or better, they touch us. And the Lord who saves us by means of these things meets us within them. Until we gather on that great day of Easter. And what do we do? We bring this holy season and this great movement to a wondrous completion by standing up. We who marked our foreheads six weeks ago with ashes, we stand up. We renew the vows of our baptism, reminding us of who we are. Once we were no people, now we are God's people. And the same foreheads that received the dry and dead ashes on a Wednesday six weeks ago will feel the cold, life-giving touch of baptismal water thrown over them on that day, reminding us that we are that people who rises refreshed out of those waters to the promise of eternal life because of him, because he did show up for that Passover festival, and because he is with us over these days. And how wonderful it is that we can consider these things here, where he's going to be quite literally present in just a few minutes, because he's here already. And in just a few minutes, that presence of the Lord will become very full, very intense, very real and very true indeed. And we who will put our hands to all of these things over the coming week will come forward here and put our hands out to him, to receive him, that it is he who carries us into the coming week not we who carry him, but he who carries us. Amen. Amen.